we've been really put under pressure to do something new to make us stand out. All right, welcome back to Creator Economy Live. This is episode 16. As always, this is your place to get the download on all things influencer marketing and the creator economy. We are your hosts, Keith Bendis and Brennan Gann, and we are joined today by the very talented Meredith Almond, social media lead for Jimmy John's. If you don't follow their social channels, you should. They do an unbelievable job. Meredith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you both. Excited to be here. Great way to spend a Friday. I know. Brendan, are you a Jimmy John's fan? Oh, yeah, of course. Who hasn't had Jimmy John's? Full disclosure, until my me- I met my wife, I had never had it, and I love it. But Meredith, there are no more Jimmy John's in San Francisco. There were two downtown, and there's none now. We need to change those. I know. Are you interested in becoming a franchisee? Because, you know, I can hook you up <laughs> with the right guy. Actually, one of, the ones, one of the ones in San Francisco, a friend of a friend, was the franchisee there. So I'll have to... His my bone to pick, I guess, is with him. But yeah, it's disappointing. I can't get my Jimmy John's when I'm in the city. Such a shame. You got to come to the East Coast. Yep, exactly. All right. Well, we're thrilled to have you. I'm a big fan of of yours personally, and also obviously the accounts you're running. But for those who don't know you, do you want to give a quick background on, on how you got here and what you're doing now? Absolutely. So I realized as I was prepping for this, I am hitting 10 years of professional social experience, which is wild, especially because starting out in college, I just remember my mom was like, you'll never be able to make a career in this, like try something else. And here I am 10 years later, thriving, as I like to say. And so I got my start really on the agency side, started out as a community manager in the trenches, writing copy, replying to everyone, and rose through strategy, which was really awesome at a social first agency and then on to full service. So got to touch a lot of different verticals, a lot of different clients, worked a lot of hours on the agency side, and then finally found the other side of the world (laughs) (laughs) in-house, going really deep on Jimmy John's has just been such a breath of fresh air and such a different way to kind of get sharp in marketing. So being able to understand so many different facets of the business, I just think makes me a better social media marketer, makes the content better. I know the audience better. I can report back to leadership better. And it's, I've been here about a year and a half. So it's just been, oh, it's been really fun. That's awesome. I have a random question. What's the biggest difference doing social agency side versus brand side? I've always been agency side. Yeah. I mean, you're much more removed, I say, from the hands-on day-to-day of it all. The way that I equate it is I spent years having ideas and pitching ideas, and now I pitch it to myself and hit some. (laughs) So... (laughs) For better or worse. (laughs) So I think you just... I don't know, you're just, your brand first, I think a little bit more where maybe agency side, I was like strategy and insight and trend first and just the autonomy of being able to have direct access and the trust from my leadership to hit send is the, to me the biggest change. What's the team structure? So how are you set up on the inside? Because you do a ton across a bunch of channels. Yeah. And our team is actually growing right now. So thankfully, as we continue to do more things, we're actually being able to add on to our team. But 
So I manage our social team, which is a content creator and a community manager, essentially. Obviously, we have an extensive network of agency partners that we engage with that help us do all the great work that we do. At the end of the day, you know, the team of three that sits here in this office every single day is we're the ones that are responsible for what goes into the world, how we handle crises, how we report back on everything. So in addition to leading the day-to-day social, we're also the ones driving for talent partnerships and relationships with celebrities and activations. So again, thankful that 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 area is growing for us and we're able to add on some extra hands, but yeah, we're doing, we're doing it all right now. You might get some pings then if there's open roles now, your your DMs might be full now that you've disclosed that on, on the pod. (laughs) Yes. Please send me your best talent. I'm really looking forward to the team that we're building out this next year and got so much exciting stuff planned. I'm like, I just need the talent to help like really hit it home. Why do you think it is, and Brendan, I was going to ask you too, because I was having this conversation. We had an event this week in, in LA with a bunch of brands and agencies, and there were a few QSR brands on site. And we were talking about the fact that why is this industry almost able to color outside the lines and be so creative? It's almost like the default perception, like, oh yeah, well, they're Burger King, they're Taco Bell, they're Jimmy John's, they could do that. But why? Why has QSR become this industry where there's so much creativity on social? Yeah, Meredith, do you want to take that or you want me to take that first? I mean, I can throw out my hypothesis for sure. I think food is for everyone. So there's not one area that we're we're funneled into. Everyone loves burgers. Everyone loves sandwiches. Everyone loves tacos. Like there's just so much authority, I feel like, to play in so many different areas that you can kind of defend it based on the product. But I also think so many industries put themselves in a box that don't that doesn't have to be there. I just don't think QSR ever tried. You know, I think if you look at something like financial services, you think you have to play it really safe. You think you have to be really top line and professional, but you know, we've seen brands like Cash App like go really into the areas that QSR plays in and been really really successful. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's because it's a very brand first sort of arena that you're playing in. It's I don't mean this in a bad way, but sort of like they're commoditized products. It's, you know, burgers, sandwiches, etc., you know, burritos. And it's sort of like a thing you can get a lot of places. So what's the differentiator? It's the brand, it's how it makes you feel. I mean, look at McDonald's, Ronald McDonald. I'm sure at the time that must have been like really novel. That must have been one of the early big mascots, you know? That's a good question, Keith. What's your theory? (laughs) I agree with Meredith. I think the box is fake for a lot of industries and brands. And I think one brand went creative, another brand followed, and now it's just been a rolling down the hill of creativity in the QSR industry, which is, I think, a fantastic thing. So I think it is a false pretense. I agree with you, Meredith. I think think a lot of industries create the box when the box doesn't actually exist. So I thought that was a great, great answer. For you in particular, because you said you've been doing this for 10 plus years, how do you feel like social has changed over that time? I think it's gotten a lot more fragmented. Obviously, there's just a platform explosion. Whether or not we want to argue the validity of all of those is a different podcast. But there's so many places for people to be now where when I started I mean, the creative on Facebook was like this post if you blank or like 
fill in the blank here. And it was so beautifully simple and it is just not anymore. It's so nuanced. At the same time, though, I feel like it's gotten a lot less scientific. I feel like for years we were like, all right, got to crack the algorithm and we've got to do Facebook is prioritizing video content now. So we've got to do more video content. We've got to like do it like this way only to beat the algorithm. And now I feel like there's just so much more room for people to just like try things. Like forget test and learn. Yes, always have an agenda, but just try it and see how your audience reacts your audience is going to react differently on this platform than on this platform. So I think there's a lot more room and I think there's a lot more appetite from the consumer to let brands try a weird thing, like not necessarily being unhinged, but we've been really put under pressure to do something new to make us stand out in a landscape where you have so many opportunities of platform to communicate with your friends. Like where is a brand showing up in the most organic way depends on the person that you talk to. Now, you alluded to whether or not all these platforms need to exist. Which platforms are you excited about and which ones do you feel like, eh, maybe I could do without? Oh, it's a tough one right now. I honestly, I think for the first time in my career, I really don't have an idea of what's happening, like with the future of these platforms. Very burnt out on Twitter right now. X, sorry, can't get there yet. Very burnt out on it, but not sure if it's going to make a comeback. Like, all my friends have dropped off. That's not necessarily the focus group to live on. But we're seeing it in numbers from the brand side as well. Same thing kind of with threads. I fully believe in the future of whatever Meta is going to do with threads is going to make it succeed, I think, at this point. But I have no idea what's next. And I think we're just... I'm ready to be nimble and watch and see where our audience goes and make a decision based on that. But personally, I haven't made a Threads account because I've been just all in on Jimmy John's. <laughs> so it's hard to not have that like personal comparison as well. Can you talk about Threads for Jimmy John's? Because frankly, I would have put you, Jimmy John's, in the top three to five brands when, when Threads started. I thought the content was fantastic. The frequency was strong. Just It was so well done. So could you take us through how that all went down and then what... What's the difference now that we've got a few months under our belt? We were super early. I mean, within 30 minutes of it in my app store, Jimmy John's was live and I was on my couch posting. Like I was sitting at home on a Wednesday night, saw the news that Threads was launching early and I went for it. We did go really heavy very early on as we were, again, trying things out, seeing what stuck. We haven't stopped. We've got a steady drumbeat of content still, but I think everyone has said the same thing anytime anyone's asked about threads. The drop-off is there. We're not seeing the same engagement, the same humor, the same levity that we saw in those first few days. It was so fun. It was so lighthearted. It's just not quite there. And I think until they can figure out search capabilities and a way to kind of restructure that the homepage and the feed and how you're served content. I mean, really, if, if they can't steal TikTok's for you page kind of direction, then I don't know. I don't know what's happening. It's just so hard to discover anything new right now. It's funny. We've talked about threads quite a bit. And I had a theory that like, if it was going to work, it would be 
Instagram would incorporate aspects of it, of threads into Instagram natively. And I'm totally, I'm pissed. I didn't take a screenshot of it, but I saw it starting to pop up in Instagram. Have you seen that? No. Yeah. I saw it one time and I meant to take a screenshot. I was going to send it to you, Keith. And I totally blanked and I didn't do it. But I think that's how they're going to try and like keep it going. Because I agree, it's sort of like, it's kind of faded off to the distance a little bit. But everything that has like done really well that they've launched, you know, that they launched independently, like they did a TikTok competitor for a while called Lasso. It didn't work. So then they launched Reels natively in Instagram. And I think they need that kind of like hardcore community you keep going back to. So I I feel like that's going to be the direction it goes. Could be wrong, but seeing hints of it. I agree. That's where I'd put my bet. I I still think the text-based has a play. I think there's a big audience for it. But I agree. I think ultimately, unless they come out with something so unique that requires its separate app, I think ultimately it's very likely this thing comes under. I just think that there's such a craving from people for this real-time, like very quick hit stream of consciousness that if it's not on Twitter, where is it? I think that if Meta can crack that, then they will own that space. But to your point, like it's got to, it's got to change the way that it currently is, isn't working. So um excited to see what happens. And I mean, we're big fans of that style of content. And I personally need a space to go talk about Taylor Swift. So send me where that is and I'm ready. <laughs> Brendan, what would you say, though, if, if I were to ask you five years from now, does, does X exist? Does it exist? Yes. Is it the same? Does it have the same cultural impact? I think that remains to be seen. I could have sworn that I saw something recently, a headline saying that the numbers have actually increased, which I'm sort of skeptical of because I, I sort of feel like I'm having the same feeling. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm seeing the same level of engagement i find myself not spending as much time there too which is interesting because like i'm i've gone through phases of like me being super active posting but i've always been pretty addicted to checking it and like i'm not checking it nearly as often what's your bet i think it exists and i agree i think it's gonna be a different app i don't have the numbers in front of me but musk in the last couple of weeks, he said something about the the daily tweets and it's way down oh, okay. from being X now versus being Twitter back when they were reporting pretty consistently. So I think the activity is clearly way down. And with the whole X transition, I, don't, I think it's gonna be a different look, different feel, different app, but I still just don't think it goes away. All right, before we jump into the top stories, I do just want to hear, Meredith, any proudest moments in this Jimmy John's journey, posts that you still hold dear to heart? Yeah, I've got a couple actually printed out of ones that I thought were really fun, but it changes all the time. And just, it's always like, what's the next thing we're working on? That's the one I'm like most proud and most ready for the world to see. I I mean, I have to call out the Young Gravy work that we did at the beginning of this year because it was just such a big swing for this brand to work with a, a, a talent like Young Gravy to do a campaign called MILF and Cookies. I mean, it was just, I genius all around thanks to our agency partners but such a big swing again for the brand that like ended up in a truly a home run that allowed us to continue to invest in creators and continue to invest in talent like this and really set us up for what's going to be a really exciting Q4 really exciting 2024 that I'm excited about 
I also just really proud of how this team has embraced 420 for the brand. Like it's such a, it's a culturally nuanced space. It's been such a fun puzzle with not just how do we speak to the people that are celebrating this holiday in a way that makes us know them. And then also how do we work around all the platform restrictions? I mean, any alcohol brand you talk to is going to say it's almost impossible to show product, especially on a place like TikTok. But for us to be able to work around all of those restrictions and still be in the space and be incredibly well-received by people in that community has been, to me, just a huge proud moment because I just think it's so easy to, as a brand, feel phony and feel like you're taking advantage of a conversation like that. I mean, we've got the right brand and right product to the behavior was already happening. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Got it. Noted. <laughs> How did you guys observe that? Just out of curiosity, was it like social listening? You're picking up on that? Oh yeah. I mean, I'd probably see five tweets a day about you know, I'm taking a break and I'm ordering Jimmy Johns. Um, <laughs> so you know, why would we fight what people are already? Doing? I love that you guys embraced that. That's awesome. Yeah. Listen, 420 and MILF gets a legal red line for 95% of companies. So it's still, even if it's part of the culture, it's impressive to get something out the oh door on those God, two yeah. topics. Um, I'm sure my my face is printed out in the legal office of like people to watch out for. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, amazing. All right, let's do. Let's jump into the top news. And this conversation is going to look different than it probably would before 24 hours ago when YouTube had their Made on YouTube event. So a lot of conversation coming out of this. I don't know how closely you both followed this, but they revealed a bunch of new upcoming generative AI features. The ones that I thought were most interesting, if you have any others, feel free to chime in, but Dream Screen, so that was enabling the creators to use generative AI to produce a video or image background for YouTube Shorts, so making what happens behind you much, much easier. AI Insights, I thought was very interesting. Tool offers suggestions for video topics based on the videos that the creator's audience is already watching on YouTube. It says it even will generate an entire video outline, kind of like what TikTok had done, and Brendan, we talked about that. Allowed was an audio dubbing technology. It translates videos audio into other languages. We talked a bunch about this last week, Brendan. And then the final one, which I actually almost got most excited about, was the new mobile app called YouTube Create that's going to be a CapCut competitor. So not, not going to be easy for anyone to compete with CapCut these days because of the, the traction already. But if anyone could do it, I think it's, it's YouTube. So Brendan, I guess, curious your thoughts and then Meredith on all of this, because YouTube, I feel like, hasn't been our lead-in story for a while on this pod. Yeah. I think this is really interesting, particularly the AI video generation and like helping with the topics and outlines. I feel like there's been a lot of conversation around like, oh, what does this mean for creators? You know, weird stats, not weird stats, but predictions around like, uh, you know, a couple of years from now, 90% of the content created is going to be totally AI and 90% of the content we consume is going to be like completely AI generated. So, I feel like this is an inevitability, and I think it's going to get better. I think the big question then is, like, what are the implications for, like, brands and creators? And I don't see this being a world where it's, like, a replacement necessarily. Like, I think creators really have an opportunity to, yeah, use these tools. But the thing that they do so well, and the, the I feel like the really successful creators, they 
often build that like parasocial relationship with their audience. They bring people in. People, it, it's like a one-to-many friendship. And I think that piece is going to be difficult to replace with AI. And I think if anything, hopefully it lets them, it frees up some of the, their bandwidth on the production side and they can really lean into like the community cultivation piece. And so I think for creators who aren't just like, I'm just going to get a bunch of views and go for kind of like, I don't know, for lack of a better term, shortcuts, those that really invest in the community, I think this is an opportunity to, yeah, free up a little bit of mental bandwidth, production bandwidth, and like focus on the community side. And I think those that do that are going to really, really do well. I don't know. What do you guys take? I think the thing that you just said to me is the production is really hard. I don't know how you feel, Meredith, but I have a lot of friends who are like, oh, being an influencer, what do you just point a camera at your face, you turn on record, and I laugh. I'm like, if you tried to do this once, you would, your mind would be blown because it's really hard. I know there are tools like CapCut, but this stuff is really, really hard. And so I think right now there is a little bit of favoritism and performance for people who have really strong production skills using these tools. And if anything, I think AI will make it so it's more about the strategy, the storytelling, like the creative and less do I literally have really good tech production skills using these apps? So I'm I'm excited about it. Meredith, I'm curious your thoughts on all of this. Plus, just what do you, what do you think of YouTube as a brand? Well, I mean, I think YouTube is king. Like, it doesn't get the shiny headlines like the rest of our platforms that we're trying to keep up with and figure out do. But, like, YouTube has almost proven itself and sat back. Like, they haven't needed to. I have so many thoughts on this because I think AI is can be problematic, can be really great. Like it's it's kind of, you know, I'm like, are there gonna be disclaimers on all these creators' contents that that I know that AI has helped them make this as a brand, potentially hiring them? You know, what is the level of like hands-on creativity? I don't know. Like it's it's very up in the air for me right now, but I love it from the sense of creators starting out have a lot more tools that they can work with that help them produce higher quality content. And then I also think about like creators like Zach King that did all of this work so magically himself from his own skill set for years. How is this going to affect kind of, I guess, the disparity in the quality that we're going to see from creators? I'm excited to see what happens and see if this gets more people creating a lot more content on YouTube. But I don't know, tended like cautiously optimistic about AI in general when it comes to content creation. When it comes to shorts in particular, because this is the conversation I feel like I have a lot with brands, you have a really large user base. They, they did disclose numbers for YouTube shorts, and it's really astronomically high, more, much higher than I thought it would have been. But it's still not Reels or TikTok. And so I think a lot of brands say to themselves, like, in this short-form world, do I really need creators on all three platforms doing different things? Or can I just use TikTok creators because that was first, that's the largest pool of quality creators, and I'll just buy media with that on shorts or reels? Or do I do reels because I can ask for other things? I can ask for a story, an in-feed, and a reels, and then that reels, I'll then put it on YouTube shorts and I'll put it on, on TikTok. So how do you think about shorts? Like, would you ever go shorts first or have that be a part of a strategy with creators? I totally would. I think it hasn't been a priority for us, even though the reach is insane. Like, it is by the numbers, going to be probably the place that if we put a piece of content that 
flopped on reels would probably take off on YouTube. I think the challenge from a personal and brand side right now and in a situation kind of where we are with our team and prioritizing what we need to be able to work on is visibility. And you go to an Instagram account, you see content on that Instagram account. You go to a TikTok account, you see content on that TikTok account. You go to your YouTube page when, right? Like, there are just different behaviors from a person that, I mean, truly, we just haven't really had the chance to test it. And I know that it would be a place that we would do a, a shorts-only approach, just haven't yet. I'm really excited to hear, hopefully I'll do some research after this and hear from some brands that have taken that leap because I do think it's all about priorities. Yeah. What are you seeing, Brendan? Are you seeing brands leaning in on shorts or they're kind of like, we have TikTok and and Reels? It's funny with the brands we work on, it's almost the same thing. It's sort of like oddly not a priority in the same way that TikTok and Reels are. I think in general, you know, a lot of brands struggle with YouTube holistically. I mean, long form content, like keeping up with TikTok, Instagram, tweets, threads, like that is so much. And to do YouTube right, to like feed that beast is like a whole other, it's almost like it's a separate ecosystem. It's like search, content production, social, all in this like new, not new, it's not, it's like the oldest one, but like this amalgamation that it takes a whole other sort of like mode of operating. And so as a result, yeah, like we've dabbled in shorts, but it has not been a priority. And it's interesting because it is sort of, a big opportunity. Agreed. I think the connection, they're building their house. And I think the more connected the house is for YouTube, the more interesting this becomes. Because like you saw, we talked about, I think a few weeks ago, they're connecting shorts to long form. So you could put that link so that you could drive to long form. Keep in mind, this is Google, right? So now we're starting to talk about shorts. How do you use that in a paid capacity under Google? How do you connect that to your Google Analytics? Start getting last click attribution (laughs) through these social means, which is what everybody wants on TikTok. So I think ultimately they have an ecosystem where their pitch could be really attractive to say, sure, you can do TikTok, but if you do shorts, we actually have this entire ecosystem where the data is going to be so strong on how this stuff performs and testing and all of this stuff. That ultimately I think could be the place that they win just from a pure short form video content. I still go back to what I said before. Like I would do it on TikTok because there's more creators in volume or I would do it on Reels because I could get something other than Reels. So I think data has to be their angle in their whole Google ecosystem. And it dovetails nicely with their prioritization of like long form video podcasts. Like I feel like, I don't know about you guys, but outside of friend recommendations, it's like, TikTok clips. I'm like, oh, that's a podcast I haven't seen. I got to check it out. And it's like a buddy of mine wrote this line and I've repeated it so many times. It's so good. It's like TikTok is the trailer. YouTube is the movie. And it's like, it's so true. And and you could use that sort of synonymously TikTok with like reels or shorts. And I think YouTube, to your point, Keith, I think that's a great way of thinking about it. It's like if they can connect that just like a little bit more clearly and build out that ecosystem system, it's going to be really, really powerful. Yeah. Well, I I just wanted to have the numbers too, Andy. So it said, because Google did talk about this, more than 2 billion logged in monthly users are watching shorts and more than 30 billion daily views. So it is, the numbers are pretty insane. It's just, again, you think of it third, you don't think of it first or second for short form. 
All right. So we also had some interesting new news. I mean, X is always in the news. We can never avoid X. So Musk said that they may move to having a small monthly payment for use in order to stamp out bots. Obviously, Brendan, we talked about paid Facebook potentially in, in Europe. But would you, Meredith, pay for X ever? And do you like the concept of paid social where you do have to pay? I wouldn't pay for a subscription to something just to have access to it. I would pay to have premium access or to enhance an already kind of established experience. But I think the issue is we've been using the platform as is for, I don't know, 15 years, like I, like for very long time, all of a sudden I don't get access to it and I have to start paying. I also feel like there's a bit of uh, like almost gating information and making it feel a bit like an echo chamber as soon as you're starting to require people to pay. You have more control over their data. You have more control over what they're seeing. So I don't know, Brendan, I feel like you have a lot of thoughts going on in your head. I would love to hear from you too. Yeah, for sure. So first off, I'm going to caveat all this with, I don't think it'll work for all the reasons you just said, Meredith. That said, I'm so curious and I kind of like the idea of somebody doing a paid social service because I think there's potential for it to be more positive. And here's sort of like my rationale. I'm like, I'm going to steal the Tristan Harris quote. If you're not paying for it, you're not the customer, you're the product being sold. And I think there's some truth to that. But I wrote on LinkedIn and a lot of people got upset about this. And it was, wasn't, was I don't know if this is true. This is more of like an exercise in thought. But like over the last few years, we've seen, you know, a lot of disinformation, you know, divisiveness, people getting really nasty on social. And it's, as humans, we tend to gravitate towards the extremes. There's polarization. And the platforms know this. I mean, polarization leads to more page views. You can sell more advertising. It's like, it's sucking people in. And I think the ad revenue model, like, really leans into that. And I sort of made the the comparison to in the 1890s, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like yellow journalism, but you know, remember like the newsies, you know, they'd like make up crazy headlines. It was very sensational and attention grabbing headlines, dramatic stories, scandals, gossip, etc. And that emerged in the 1890s, specifically in New York as big publishers competed for sales amongst like the working class. But then that dissipated that form of sort of like yellow journalism, the the you know crazy outlandish headlines dissipated with the introduction and widespread adoption of the subscription, you know, paid subscription model, because newspapers were being rewarded for delivering reliable, high quality content and weren't reliant upon like catching people in the moment to pick up the paper. And so they were servicing their paid subscribers and really trying to like focus on quality. And so I sort of made the the comparison that, hey, maybe a paid subscription model would lead to a more wholesome internet. You know, it certainly, I would imagine, cut down on bots dramatically because like how many people are going to pay for like thousands of bot accounts? I mean, I'm sure there will still be some, but that was my sort of like optimistic take on it. In reality, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think people are going to adopt it. I cannot imagine Musk sticking to this. But 
I feel like people say that all the time about him, and then he just does stuff anyways. I would love to be surprised, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe if it was a new service and that service was around more news, or I don't know. It's just the fact that the town hall can't exclude the people who can't afford to pay. And that's the big thing is it has to be an open town square if, if this is going to be a town square place. And that's where I get a little dicey. But I agree with you, Meredith. I think, like everything, the reason they get backlash for saying a very similar thing that Meta just said a week ago is Meta made it about getting premium things, like securing your privacy, not having ads. And Musk made it just, this is just the reality because bots. You know, <laughs> which is always the answer, because bots. And I think there is validity to this would help with bots, unquestionably, but it has to be an option. It has to come with more premium features. So like everything, it's how it's said, not what is said. And he just said it in a really poor way. His uh, approach, it's so fascinating because you can understand like why you might want to think through a lot of these options. But the problem is it's not an, like, it's not an engineering challenge. It's not like, let's build it, try it, run it, and then implement it. It's like, no, you're like doing it in real time with people and people are so fickle. Like we don't like things like in theory, it might work, but you got to like think about the approach, the rollout. And he's just like, Hey, 300 million people, I'm going to do this differently. And it's like 300 million people are not going to be happy about change instantaneously, particularly when it's like just on the fly and advertisers really don't like that. (laughs) That's, That's well said. That's very well said. Creator Economy Live. Join Keith and Brendan live and in person, as well as hundreds of brands in Vegas on January 17th for lively conversation and debate about everything in the world of influencer marketing and the creator economy. All right, on the topic of change, or this is more additions, not change, but TikTok is eyeing more social networking features. So private messaging, a bunch of others, and there was a lot of press pickup on, are they becoming more of a social network and becoming less entertainment? What are your thoughts on this? One, do you want it to be more social or do you want it to stay as an entertainment platform? Is this good or is this bad for us as users? I, like, why do they need to be two separate things? I think, why couldn't my entertainment be in the DM with my best friend at, within TikTok? You know, I think they can both totally live in a world that, it doesn't make it a different app. You're just getting more opportunity to share within the app, spend more time within the app. Of course, that's what they want to drive up, right? It's like numbers spend. I don't want to text a TikTok link to my friend that doesn't have TikTok. I want to be able to have more of a, a conversation within the app. I don't know. I mean, I think from that's a, a brand blind spot also, as we know there's so much rich stuff that goes down in the DMs that we don't have access to. And then, you know, for TikTok to take some of the conversation out of the comment section, which we know is personally a favorite place to live. What's going to change? I don't know. I think you're just, again, you're fragmenting the conversation. It's interesting. Like, I love that line. It goes down in the DMs. I think it's so true. Like, that's where the action happens. It's so fun and exciting. (laughs) It's where we can be ourselves. Yeah. And like, ah, yeah, it's so fascinating. But like... I think it's interesting, yeah, like, it's interesting sort of this subtle turn that TikTok has been making because it's like, they've always said, we are not a social network, we're an entertainment platform. And what was really interesting was when they launched, 
they unbundled the social graph. They made the first kind of like social platform where you didn't need to know anybody because it was all about the for you page. And so it was all algorithmically recommended content. You could have a great experience and not have any friends on the app. And now they're sort of like, so that was like their way to like flank the other social networks and get in in a really unique way. And now they're like chipping away at the the social platforms. And I actually saw a podcast clip of Adam Mosseri and he was saying, I think he was saying that the DMs in terms of usage, it was like, it's definitely more than images. I don't know if it was more than stories, but it was like in the top three or something like that. I'm sure TikTok knows this and they want to capitalize on this change. And so they've added like more filtering in the messages and features. And at the same time, I don't know if you guys get this, but I get it all the time. It's like, you may know this person, connect to your Facebook. Like they're pulling in your more and more of your social graph and then definitely evolving beyond just a pure entertainment platform. I agree. I think it's a good evolution. I, even just the following and what I watch, I it, you're right, Brendan. In the beginning, it was so nice to just go on and not have to know anyone and connect with anyone and just get fed interesting content. But I have felt, maybe it's just me, I don't know if you've had the same experience lately, even the people I follow, I just don't see their content that much. And the themes that I'm like intrigued by watching that day, I just don't get served it that much. So there is an element of, it was novel, it was nice, it was fun, but now maybe the algorithm doesn't know what I want as much as I know what I want. And I want to be able to go to just the people I follow. I want to be able to have a conversation with someone I'm connected to. So I do like the evolution because it's not like, the entertainment's going away. I just think it's both. Boom. All right. Yes. Let's do Cal Bao. That is creator of the week and brand of the week. So let's kick it off. <laughs> Meredith, who's your creator of the week? I'll say this was the hardest one because I had really? so many. Yes, I debated. But I'm going to go with Remy Bader. Not sure if y'all follow her. Love her. Um, I would call her like a fashion lifestyle influencer. I mean, she's got in, in the millions on Instagram. First of all, she's hilarious. I love her just personality. Would love to go to lunch with her one day. Please be my friend, Remy. She's really there, like being really, really po body positive and talking about fashion, plus size fashion, the fashion industry, how it, you know, it all just doesn't really accommodate people above a certain size. And she's so honest and again, hilarious in the way that she talks about it. It's like me looking into a mirror of me in my closet, throwing myself a temper tantrum while I'm trying to find something that I feel beautiful in. And She's creator of the week for me this week specifically because Khloe Kardashian actually duetted one of the videos that she posted of her having that sort of breakdown of nothing fits the way that it wants, you, you know, that I want it to. And it's the, the age-old tale that all women have felt in the closet trying to feel themselves that day. And Khloe Kardashian duetted her video, obviously a huge platform for Remy also to extend her audience and... I don't know, just really appreciate her and hope to see more people like her, like Victoria Brown, just being really honest on TikTok and, you know, anti-filter, I would say. That's a great one. I love Remy. I always show, I show brands a lot. She did an interview with Anthony Fauci once. Ooh. And I use it with brands in pharma and healthcare a lot because I think so many of them default to, I need 
to work with an HCP or I need an expert to be the influencer themselves. And I thought, regardless of what you think of Fauci, I thought it was brilliant that he recognized it's not my following. He actually has a decent following. It's the lifestyle Remy's following that I'm after to understand and educate. And so I use that interview a lot to say, someone like Remy is a great distribution for a great message, no matter what the message is. And it doesn't always have to be the expert or the professional to deliver the message themselves. There you go again with that that fake box that brands have put themselves in, thinking outside of it. I love that. Now, Keith, who is your creator of the week? Mine is Bobby Parrish. Again, less of the this particular week, but I've never given Bobby a shout out. I don't know if you watch his channel, but he he's fantastic. It's Flav City is his channel. You might know it as Flav City versus Bobby Parrish, but he goes around, a lot of it is going around a grocery store and he'll stand in like the olive oil aisle and tell you all about like what's healthy, what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat. Then he'll go to yogurt. It's like, what is bad? What is good? But he wanted to be on the Food Network very, very badly. So he applied for the next Food Network star and he got declined. So he started this YouTube channel. Now he has over 3 million followers just on Instagram and TikTok alone. And him and his wife, Desi Parrish, they filmed online cooking videos for the sole purpose of providing healthy food to people who like didn't know a lot about it. And then years later, he quits his job in finance. Desi quits her job in corporate America. This two-bedroom apartment in Chicago turns into a production studio. And now Flav City is massive. And the content is really fantastic. So if you're into food, if you're into like healthy eating, you should definitely follow Flav City. All right, I'm going to check that out. My creator of the week. So so this was interesting. We were talking, I think, before we started recording. We hosted a little panel here. Brett from Workweek does these, like, monthly meetups, and we've hosted them at Mechanism before, and he'll do them at bars sometimes, other startups and agencies, et cetera. Anyways, so we did a panel, and he asked us, who's the next billion-dollar creator brand? And I had two answers. One was Jocko, which, so maybe I'll say, save him for another one. But my other one was Miss Rachel. And like, you could tell all the parents in the audience were like, yes, like, like just screamed out. Like, for those who don't know, Miss Rachel, she does like, she has this YouTube channel. It's got, over, you know, nearly 4 billion views. She started in 2019. It's all for like little kids. And she does like, it's songs for littles, a children's music series focused on language development for toddlers and infants. And it's so funny because like I have a lot of friends with kids. Every time I'm with somebody that has a kid, like let's say under like four or five, like they'll be like, I'm going to put on Miss Rachel so like they can like keep themselves busy and we can go hang out. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so I like noticed this pattern over the last year. She's like bigger than Sesame Street. It's wild. Yeah, I don't have kids, but all of my friends that have kids also enjoy sitting down with their children to watch Miss Rachel. So there's something to be said about, like, not ostracizing the parents, too. Yeah, it's so wild. All right, cool. So Remy Bader, Miss Rachel, Bobby Parrish. And now let's transition to Brand of the Week. Keith, do you want to start first with this one? Who is your brand of the week? Sure. I went with Target just because they're introducing storefronts and, you know, my love for social commerce and, and driving people kind of down funnel with this stuff. So it's for the shopping season. I mean, that's what they're gearing up for. But Amazon has done this really well. We've all seen Amazon storefronts. But the Target storefronts, 
Basically, people can purchase directly from them. Creators recommend products. You can make the purchases through Target. And it said since Tuesday's announcement, which was only a few days ago, more than 350 influencers have already created a storefront, including some pretty big fashion and lifestyle influencers, Ava Jules, Kier Gaines. So I think it's going to be interesting how this converts and if it converts, but I still think the infrastructure for storefronts and creator product recommendations, every retailer should be building that. So this is a smart move for Target. Love it. All right. I'm going to have to read up on that announcement. Meredith, what is your brand of the week? Outside of Jimmy John's. Right. Always. No, I have to give some QSR love to Sweet Green this week. They just launched a custom bowl with Renee Rapp. What I love about it, obviously, I'm admiring every single detail, need to see the comms plan, like love, love it. From the photo shoot that they had of her wearing a giant receipt to bringing her in store at her hometown, Sweet Green, to greet fans to the sponsored content that they had, I just thought the whole thing was really well done from all angles. Something, you know, that I think we all try to achieve just not to make it feel like we just hired a, a face to come, you know, stand next to our product. Um, just felt really real. She's a real fan. And I mean, I just would have loved to also have been in the room as they were trying to sell in Renee as like, you know, Gen Z queen to a leadership team. So just admiring from afar, really great industry work. And I also am personally a big fan of Sweet Green. So I'll have to get over there and try it out. How easy is that? I'm curious, Meredith. So like you think about Duncan and Charlie and Chipotle and Keith Adia and McDonald's and their meals. Like if, if you wanted to do tomorrow, Jimmy John's special sandwich in collaboration with the creator and call it a creator thing. Is this really hard to do, you feel like, for brands? Because now it's talking about the store experience and the menu and everything. Or do you think every brand is thinking about how to do that quickly and well? I think it's hard to do it right. I think every brand is trying to crack it. I think what was unique about this one, and we've also seen this with Duncan recently, I would encourage you to look at the work with Ice Spice. It's amazing. Um, super biased because they're, you know, neighbors of us, sister brand. But they created a product around the person. I think that's what takes a little bit longer, but that's also the level of detail that makes it so much more impactful is when you can go into the product development stage with your culinary team and come up with something that's that fits the person, which is what Sweet Green did, which is what Duncan did, which is what Sonic did over the summer with their slushes. So it takes longer to do it right. We could do it, we could do it tomorrow with, I don't know, whoever and pull up an existing sandwich, but it's like, what's the point? It doesn't feel personal. Those Erewhon smoothies, that's another one that like, I've never once walked into an Erewhon, but like, holy crap, I cannot, like people tell me about these things all the time. Yeah, your LA is showing. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. Like, uh, anyways, that's a whole other tangent. All right, so mine... So this is this is kind of a weird, it's not like time dependent, but I was having this conversation with Brian Reesberg, who we had on the pod, owns Maxine the Corgi and launched a, a you know dog backpack brand. We were hanging out the other day. And I don't know, somehow we stumbled upon this. We're like, is the Super Bowl a waste of money? And I was like, yeah, it's a total waste of money these days. And then then I was like, well, maybe not if it's done right. It's just so many are done poorly. And he's like, yeah, yeah, if it's done right. And I was like, what's a good one recently? Because they they tend to all follow the same pattern. There's like, you know, late, you know, 
early 2000s music, late 90s music, you know, some kind of generic celebrity. And he showed me this one, and I don't think I'd seen it. I, I hardly ever watch the Super Bowl unless I'm, like, working on it. And I don't know if you guys have seen this. It's called Forever, the Farmer's Dog Food Commercial. It's Forever by Farm. Okay, yeah. He showed this to me, and, like, I was like, he was like kind of behind me. I started tearing up and I was like, I'm not going to look around behind him because he's going to see my, my, me tearing up. And then five minutes turn around, he's bawling. <laughs> it is so incredible. And so like randomly, like I asked a few people like, what was the, you know, what was a good Super Bowl commercial or whatever? And like everybody said this. And so it's like a great example of like it has like lasted and like people are still recalling it like almost a year later. That's so impressive. Now we're rounding the bend almost to the finish. We're going to do our quick follow, unfollow. Keith, follow. My follow, you you talked about it, Meredith, but was the AI labels. TikTok released it. A few other platforms are releasing it. I agree with you. I think there's concerns, and I think we need transparency. So I'm a big fan of these AI labels so that you know content is produced by AI. The one thing which you're kind of alluding to, Meredith, is there's two types of AI. One is just knowing that the content was created by it. Another is almost a warning of this might not be accurate or real like the deep fake stuff. And we almost need separate ones. One is just, oh, that's cool. They made it with one AI. One is, this is a warning label on this content. But I'm, I'm really happy that the platforms are being proactive and they're not being forced by the government to do this. They're actually doing it. My unfollow, I don't know how both of you are going to feel about this, but virtual influencers. There was the virtual creator, Nunuri, and that virtual creator signed with Warner Music Group. So she's the first digital pop star to sign with the music label. Her first single, Dominoes, was released last week. It was a big deal. I guess I don't mind the music stuff that much because I think you can make music with AI and maybe it's almost like a DJ personality that you've created. I'm just not a big fan of the virtual influencer trend in general. We always talk about authenticity as an industry. If you're a brand, how could the thing be authentic if they've never tried your product, eaten your products, used your product, and then they're like a promotional being for the product. So I don't know how you feel about virtual influencers, but I'm, I'm a little down on them these days. I've never found the appeal. Never understood it. Seems like a great PR headline and like, but no depth. Yeah. Would you ever do one, Meredith? Would you ever partner with virtual influencers? I will never say never. I don't see the application right this minute, but totally open to it if it's the right partnership. But I think to your point, you know, even the FTC guidelines are, you need to actually try the product to be able to claim that you are endorsing this product. So for something like a real life sandwich, I don't know how that works. For something like music, I do think that's a little different. I think it's industry-based, but that's been one of those things that as a, on a personal level, I'm like, I want to know the real human on the other side. And I want to feel like they've been through similar experiences that I have. And I don't see that with this, but yeah. Yeah. Now, Meredith, who's your follow? Who's your unfollow? My follow is in sync reunion rumor tour, you know, what's happening. I don't know. I thought maybe I would come into the office this morning and I would see some news and be able to be like, there's no rumor anymore, but it's not true. I think what I love about it is all of those members, regardless of what's actually happening, are now using social media in a, when they were promoting their own music 
did not have that opportunity. So there really weren't these like reunion rumor mills in the 90s that there can be today because of content. And I just don't, I think it's really fun to see them all kind of back and online and in their normal lives and all together. It's been fun to watch and excited to see what happens with them. It was my first concert, so I have a personal interest as well. Bridget, your follow, unfollow, go. Well, now I'm going to I'm gonna follow. I Meredith, I think I gave you a follow right before this call. If I didn't already, I could have sworn. And then, yeah, but I had YouTube because I think they continue to be, like, yes, probably the most difficult platform to grow on, but, like, most valuable and creator-friendly platform. And then unfollow, I didn't have one, and I couldn't throw any under the bus, anybody under the bus. So maybe I'll piggyback yours. All right. Well, that's all the time we have once again. Meredith, thank you so much. Keep up the great work. Get San Francisco the Jimmy John's we deserve. I'll put a word in. <laughs> all right. Thanks, all. Thanks so much for being here. That was fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. And for more of the latest news on what's happening in influencer marketing and the creator economy, check out the Creator Economy Insider newsletter delivering awesome content straight to your inbox every Friday. And if you want to meet Brendan and I in person, along with some of the incredible guests that will be joining us on the show live and in person, join us at Creator Economy Live on January 17th next year. You can find links to the newsletter and more info on the live event in our bio. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. This podcast is brought to you by Linkia, the number one influencer marketing partner for the world's leading brands. Having executed over 3,000 campaigns for more than 650 brands, Linkia combines technology powered by Google Vision AI with award-winning service to deliver measurable influencer results.